Welcome to another edition of the Axiom Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Brannon. This is episode 29. Today, I want to talk about blue-collar services and specifically delivering value in blue-collar services. We spend a lot of time here at Axiom talking to other CPAs, other white-collar professionals. But our client base is kind of all over the spectrum. I think uh, getting into the ideas about how we run our business and some of the challenges we face, it's easy to get caught up in you know, talking to people who look a lot like you in terms of addressing professional services. But I've had some conversations over the last few weeks with clients and prospects who run blue-collar businesses, and they're telling me they're running into some of the same issues that we run into as white-collar professionals when it comes to pricing services and delivering value and having customers push back. So I want to give you two examples. Well, I'm going to get into an extended example, but I recently had two companies. One is an HVAC company and the other is a roofing company, and they both are dealing with the same issue. They're, they're both selling into the home services market, and they both are relaying experiences to me where customers were dissatisfied with the service uh, or, or, well, I guess they were dissatisfied with the experience, not dissatisfied with the service. So the customers didn't have any issue with the actual work that was done, the products that were sold, the service that was delivered. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that the customers didn't feel like the work took long enough, and they're pushing back on the amount that they got charged because they're going, well, you know, you're charging me $800 for something that cost, you know, the, the something that took your technician an hour to fix. That sounds ridiculous. So what's happening with these customers? What is the issue that needs to be resolved? Well, there's two things that I think happens in these situations, and they may actually be both happening in the same situation, but I guarantee you one of the two is happening, if not both. The first thing that's happening, that could be happening, is that the customer subscribes to this labor theory of value. Now, this is something that Ron Baker talks a lot about in his books. It's something that's been written about by economists since capitalism first became a thing, right? So labor theory of value just means that the cost plus the profit equals the price. In other words, whatever it costs you to deliver a good or service, you're going to add up all of those costs, the labor, the materials, the supplies, all of that stuff, plus, oh, and your overhead. So there's got to, there's an overhead component of that. So you allocate overhead, you know, your office rent, the people who work in the office who aren't out in the field doing direct labor, the people who aren't in the warehouse and all that stuff. So you add all of your costs up, and then you add on top of that what is your profit for that job, the desired profit, and the pro- you know, and, and the customer wants that to be a small number, right? They they want you to have a small profit, you know, because that's going to increase their price. But whatever the sum of those two numbers is, cost plus profit, that equals the price. So what the customer's doing is they're computing an hourly rate. And then they're going to deduct what they think the manual labor, the technician, mechanic is getting paid, and the rest of the profit they're imputing to you. Now, we talked about all of the the overhead and that kind of stuff that needs to be allocated. The customer is usually leaving that stuff out. So what's happening is they're showing up, and let's say that you send two guys up on the roof, and they're up there for two hours, and you charge them 800 bucks for the repair. So they go, okay, two guys... uh, two hours, that's four man hours up there. I think that's what I said. 
four man hours, 800 bucks, 200 bucks an hour. Are you kidding me? 200 bucks an hour? I know he's only paying those guys maybe 20 bucks an hour. So he's making $180 an hour profit. That's obscene. He should not be allowed to make that much profit. I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to get ripped off like that. And that's what these customers are doing. Now, they're not thinking about the cost of dispatching the technician out there to diagnose what the problem was in the first place. They could have been a different person who, who showed up, maybe a salesman, to actually get up on the roof, to find where the leak was, to price everything out, get the customer to sign the contract. They're not thinking about the cost of the person back in the office who first took the call and had to schedule the salesman out there. They're not talking about the cost of the of the crew leader who had to schedule everything and make sure guys got to particular job sites on the appointed day. They're not th- thinking about the cost of office support, like the bookkeeper who's responsible for putting the invoicing out. They're not thinking about the receptionist. They're not thinking about the guy in the warehouse who has to keep track of all the supplies and parse them out to the trucks at the beginning of the day. They're also not thinking about the variability in profit. So there's, you know, there's some jobs where, you know, that that $800 repair is going to take two guys 2 hours up on the roof and there's some $800 repairs they get up there and they get into something nasty and it's going to take them 6 hours. You know, but on average it's going to take them maybe 4 hours. So they're not thinking about the fact that well their job took 2 hours, but most jobs take 4 hours and some jobs take 6 hours and you guys are going to win some and lose some. They're not thinking about that. All they all they're worried about is getting taken advantage of. They're not typically thinking about the supplies costs and all the stuff on the truck that wound up on the roof. They're not thinking about the overhead and what it costs you to stock a warehouse. They're also, one of the things that we found customers don't think about at all is opportunity cost. So there is a cost for every business below which it doesn't make sense to send somebody out. Because So let's think about, uh, typically customers will go, well, the crew's just sitting there. So why wouldn't you send them out to do a $75 repair? And you go, well, because we have a $150 minimum trip charge. You go, yeah, but they're just sitting there. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, that's true. They are sitting there right now. But if we wait another two hours, maybe we'll just let them sit for two hours and not do anything. Within that next two hours, somebody is going to call, and it's not going to be a $75 repair. It's going to be a $250 or $300 repair. So we're willing to wait to let them sit and not send them on the $75 call because it doesn't make sense for us. There's an opportunity cost, and the opportunity cost says that if we send them out for less than $150 on a call, we're giving up revenue because that call would come in, they would be unavailable, and we wouldn't get to take advantage of that opportunity. So those are... now. I just told you all the things that customers aren't thinking about. But who really cares? Like, let's say that a customer is thinking about all that stuff, but they're still subscribed to this labor theory of value, which says that the price you charge me should be solely based on the cost that you incur plus some arbitrary profit number. Because I say arbitrary because the customer wants to pick that number out. Like, the customer wants to decide what your profit should be, whether that should be maybe 10% of sales or 8% of sales or 6% of sales, you know, whatever the, the arbitrary number is. It's arbitrary because the customer is deciding what it is. One customer may decide it's 8%. One customer may decide that you're entitled to 10 or 12%. But none of the customers should be able to decide what your profit is. That's not the function 
of the price that you charge them. That's the whole thing that's wrong with the labor theory of value. It doesn't matter if they consider all of these other things, the cost of the dispatcher, the cost of the office support, the variability in profits, supplies, cost, overhead. Even if they had a really, really good spreadsheet and added all that stuff up, it would still be wrong simply because your costs plus whatever arbitrary profit should have nothing to do with the price. The other thing that happens, so I said there's one of two things that happens, and I just described one of those, which is the customer subscribes to this labor theory of value. The other thing that happens it the, is that the customer is comparing your, your technician's hourly rate to whatever they make. And, and this is a value judgment. They're, ju- they're basically judging. And what they're saying is, well, I, I'm, you know, I, I, uh, I'm a manager at this company, and I, I only make $40 an hour. And this guy, if I do the math, he's making 80 bucks an hour. That's not right. He can't, I, I'm more important than he is. He can't possibly be making more an hour than I am. Right? When you say what I do is more important than what somebody else does, I hope, I hope that that seems inherently wrong to you. But people do it every single day. They look at a guy who's climbing up on the roof, or they look at a guy who's taking apart their air conditioner, or they look at the person who is doing their pest control, or they look at the mechanic that's fixing their car, and they make some kind of value judgment that says, that person's not worth what I get paid, so I should be able to pay them less. Right? And that's just fundamentally wrong. The fact is, if you have a problem and that person's the only one to fix it, they're way more valuable in that situation than you are. So they should get paid way more than you could possibly get paid. What you get paid for a living has absolutely nothing to do with fixing your problem if you can't fix it yourself. So we see those two things happen lots of times in in this, what we're calling blue collar or home services or uh, or manual labor kind of markets. Those two things happen a lot with pricing. But what do you what do you need to happen with these customers? Because you really are in charge of the customer experience. They're coming to you with a problem that needs to be fixed. And so it, since they're coming to you, you're not chasing them down in the street and saying, wait, 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 I have a new way I want you to think about pricing. No, they're coming to you with a problem. And since they're coming to you, you have the opportunity to frame it in any way that you want. So how do we want them to experience this paradigm of pricing and value and solving their problems with our business? Well, the first thing is recognizing that they have a problem. You want them to understand that, yes, they do have a problem. You want them to acknowledge that fixing that problem has a value to them. There's a value of fixing it versus not fixing it. And you also want them to recognize, I think this is really important, that fixing that problem faster has a higher value. And we see this all over the place. But for some reason, in in a few industries, probably more than a few, but specifically in the ones that, that, the two experiences that kind of gave rise to this topic today, uh, this, this thinking that fixing a problem faster has a higher value just is not, there's nobody is really addressing that. Nobody's thinking about that, but it exists in so many other places. I'll give you a few examples. If you go to the post office and you want a letter to get there overnight instead of five days or, you know, whatever the, the normal priority mail, uh, first class mail 
um, time frame is, you're going to pay a lot more for that, multiples more, not just a little bit more, but multiples more. If it costs 55 cents to send a letter and you want to get it there overnight, you might be paying two or three or four or five dollars to get it there overnight. If you want to send something FedEx and you want a guaranteed delivery by 10 a.m. tomorrow morning, you could be paying 20 or 30 dollars for that. And it doesn't have to weigh a lot, right? I mean, it could just be a simple package of documents. When when you call, um, well, I say you go to the printer and you need to have something printed for your business. If you want it done by tomorrow, they're going to put a rush charge on it because you getting it sooner has a higher value. Now, you don't say, whoa, 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 well, if you're getting it done faster, it means you must have put less work into it, so I should be able to pay you less. Nobody does that because you're presented with the option before you're committed to the price. So the, cut, the printer will say, well, this is going to take five days. Do you need it sooner than that? You go, well, yeah, I have to have these by tomorrow. Well, if you have to have them by tomorrow, we can do that. We'll just put a rush charge on it. We'll move you to the front of the line. And and for some reason, people usually don't balk at that. They all kind of get that. If I'm want, uh, if i if I'm having uh, a party at my house, let's say for the holidays, it's that time of year, and let's say I've got 20 or 30 people coming over to my house for, or for a Christmas party, and, and they're going to come on Wednesday – but my lawn guy usually comes on Thursday, and I'd like him to not just cut the grass, but maybe spruce up the flower beds and do a few other things. And I need him to do that before they get here, but he's already come for the week, and I want him to come back. I'm going to expect to pay more for that because I'm dictating the terms. I'm saying I need this done right away. I need a, He's going to put a rush charge on it, a priority charge on it. And so we expect that. But in most of the home services realm... We don't go out of our way to equate this issue of timing with value. If you want it faster, if you want it done sooner, it's going to have a higher value to you. So you want them to acknowledge that they have a problem. You want them to acknowledge that fixing that problem has a definite value to them. You want them to acknowledge that fixing the problem faster has a higher value to them. And then once the value is set... They're fully invested in having that problem fixed as quickly as possible. So that's what you want them to do because once that's done, their focus shifts from the price, whatever you're charging them to solve the problem, to how well you solve the problem. Once the entire the, the price function, the value function is set, their focus is free to shift away from that and toward how well you're actually fixing the problem. And then it becomes a customer service issue. It's no longer a pricing issue. But when we fail to address price before we solve the problem, we create both a pricing and a customer service problem at the same time. And it's a very difficult one to overcome without offering some kind of discount, which is your acknowledgement that you didn't deliver the value that you promised to the customer. You didn't deliver the value that you say you're worth. And that's a big, big problem. It's big because, one, you should be getting the prices that you set. If, if you're setting prices based on value, then you should be able to deliver that value and get that price. The other, the other thing that happens is that it slows the business operation. It slows the entire process to a grinding halt. I mean, I can't tell you. Both of the situations that I'm talking about are multi-million dollar companies in excess of $10 million each. 
and in both of these cases, it was the owner of the business who was getting involved in an $800 transaction. Like their day was grinding to a halt. So all of the highest and best use activities that they could be involved in, managing, mentoring their employees, developing new products and services, kind of setting the, the, the course for where they're going in their industry, all of that high value work ground to a halt because they had to stop and address an $800 transaction simply because no thought was given, the kind of thought that we're going to bring today in this, in this topic was given to how values communicated and delivered to the customer. So how do you make that happen? Well, the, if there's one kind of phrase that, that I really want you to take out of today is that timing is everything. In this realm of delivering, of communicating value, delivering value, getting paid for value, getting acknowledged for value, having raving fans that believe you're a great value deliverer, timing is everything. You can price and then solve the problem, or you can solve the problem and then charge the customer. Those are your two options. And notice the language that we're using there. You can price and then solve or you can solve and then charge. If you just jump right into solving the problem for the customer, you're not pricing them, you're charging them for something, which is a totally different transaction. It's totally different in the way it feels to the customer. It's totally different in the perception of value from the customer. It's totally different in how they communicate the experience to friends and family and other people they might refer to you. So, Customers will always prefer to pay you to solve a problem rather than be charged for your time. They don't want to just get a bill. That's like paying taxes, right? This time of year, like November, December, in, in Manatee County where I live, most of the counties in Florida, maybe all the counties in Florida, we pay taxes, property taxes in arrears, which means we got a tax bill in November that was for the period January 1st, 2015 to December 31st, 2015. Now, there was some point in the year, like mid to late part of the year, maybe it was earlier than that, I don't remember. We get a notice that basically says, if the tax rate, you know, such and such tax rate is approved, here's our estimate of your taxes. But then in November, we just get a bill for those taxes. Now, I recognize that I've been the beneficiary of lots of services that are provided as a result of those tax revenues. So, you know, the roads that I drive down get the potholes fixed, and the policeman is there to keep us safe throughout the year, and the fire department department's there to make sure that if our house catches on fire, hopefully it gets put out before it burns to the ground. I recognize that I get, I'm the beneficiary of those services, but it's a tax, right? It just feels like a tax. I get a bill. I don't have a choice. I don't get to negotiate. There's no arguing about scope of services. It's just, it's a bill and I'm being charged taxes and I have to pay them or else. And that's the way your customers feel when you just solve the problem and then charge them for it. They didn't get much of a say-so in understanding what the problem was or how it was going to be fixed or what the options might be. They didn't get to assent that it was worth a certain amount to them. They All they know is you. they had a problem, they called you, you came and fixed it, and then just gave them a bill, and you're charging them now. And so what they perceive is that you're charging them for the time that you spent. 
They're not, you're not charging them for fixing the problem. You're charging them for the time you spent. And in these cases where you haven't done anything to lay the groundwork for, for setting up the value for the customer, I think you probably deserve all the hardship you get from them because I understand exactly how they feel. None of us like to be in this position where we're just presented a bill and expected to pay it or else. So what we're going to lay out is a little bit d- a different approach. And if you sell, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether you're a white-collar professional, whether you're a blue-collar service provider, or whether you own one of these blue-collar companies, or, or whether you want to get into it doesn't matter. This stuff works across the spectrum. No matter your white-collar, your blue-collar, this just, I mean, this is value proposition 101. So it works regardless. Anybody who's buying something wants to go through this kind of process. So I hope everybody gets value out of this, but I hope especially that somebody's listening who delivers this kind of home services, blue-collar, technician-oriented, mechanic-oriented services, and goes, wow, this is really good stuff. We should start doing some of this stuff in our business because it really, really works. So what you want to do is move the pricing discussion in front of whatever solving activity is going on. Because after that problem is solved, I'm not putting any value to it. All the value for me comes before the problem is solved. If I need to get a package from point A to point B, and it's still at point A, right now getting it to point B has a lot of value to me. Once it's to point B, there's no value there for me. That problem's been solved. Now, if I have to pay after it gets to point B, I'm not going to be super excited about that because now my problem is solved and I'm having to pay money. It would be much better for me as a, as a consumer to have to pay before it leaves point A and then it gets to point B. And now what am I concerned with after I pay? I'm just concerned that it gets to point B. And when it gets to point B, I'm super excited because I've already paid, that transaction's done, you've delivered the service, I'm going to go out and tell people how successful you are at getting it from point A to point B in line with my value expectation. But that has to happen before it leaves point A. If we've already agreed to the value once the problem is solved, what I start doing is I look for proof that I got the value I agreed to pay for. So I become your biggest fan. As a customer, I become your cheerleader. I'm looking for proof that I didn't get ripped off. Whereas if I get the bill after the service has been delivered, I'm looking for proof that I shouldn't have to pay that. It's a completely different shift in perspective. You want me to be your fan, so let's get the pricing out of the way first. And then once you're, once you're engaged in solving the problem, after I've agreed to the value and the price, then I become a cheerleader, and, and I'm looking for ways for, to, to consider myself successful in hiring you and consider you successful at delivering the value that you said. So the number one thing you can do to, to facilitate this is slow down. If you can slow stuff down you'll be halfway there because most technicians are solutionists, right? This is, and this is not my term. I think I first heard the term solutionist when, when I was sitting in a conference with Ron Baker and Ed Kless, and it perfectly describes kind of the white-collar um, CPA, engineer, attorney perspective, right? We want to solve the problem. We want to roll up our sleeves, prepare the tax return, uh, put the budget together, 
build the financial model, finish the spreadsheet, get the contract done, finish the plans, get the site you know, signed off on, uh, get the permits pulled. So we're solutionists. That's the way we think, you know, see a problem, fix a problem. And we're very, very happy. Like fixing problems is what we're good at. That's why we do what we do. But if you just jump straight into the solution, you kind of torpedo this whole process. So we have to slow down. If fixing is your core competency, fixing the customer too too fast doesn't give them any chance to value the fix that you're going to bring. So I saw a really good example. It's one of my favorite TV shows is The Prophet. And it's this guy, Marcus Leminus, who is kind of a, a self-made entrepreneur, developed a couple of national businesses, and now he goes around and he, he tries to fix these businesses. And I'm sure a good chunk of it's theater. I'm sure the producers have a big say-so in how they line things up. But he gives some pretty good business advice, and it's, all, it's, it's entertaining. And one of these shows... He was talking to a, a brother, two brothers who run uh, a business that buys cars in New York City. So they buy these cars from people who want to sell them. They give them cash, and then they the, the brothers take these cars and they sell them to wholesalers who then put them on their car lots. And so Lemonis had a lot of advice, like, well, let's get rid of the wholesalers and let's just sell them directly to the used car lots because we can we can cut out the middleman and we can take more of that profit, but. I think what we're talking about today, it, it, you can see this value proposition thing happening and slowing the process down in, in a really interesting way. So think about it this way. The person, the, the customer in this case is the person who's bringing us their car and they want us to buy their car. And the cost to the customer of that transaction is the difference between what we ultimately pay them and what they think their car's worth when they get there. So if I bring my car in and I think it's worth $10,000 and you only wind up offering me $9,000, the cost of that transaction was $1,000, right? So the price that I'm, essentially the price I'm asking you to pay as a customer, even though I'm giving you money, the price I'm asking you to pay is $1,000. Now, if I want you to pay more than $1,000, let's say I want you to to pay $1,200. Well, that means that I'm only going to offer you $8,800 for the car you think is worth $10,000. And so this was the whole premise that Lemonis was trying to, to help this business owner understand, which is, hey, you're paying too much for these cars. You're not getting a big enough price from your customer. You really need to be able to buy these for less so that our profits are higher. So how do we slow the process down? And he, he trained the brother who was in charge of doing the, the pricing and, and making the offers to these car owners. He trained him to walk around the car with the car owner as he's evaluating the checklist. So what he had done before is he would greet the person as they brought their car in, and then he would usher them into the office where they would sit in a waiting room, and then he would go out and he would do this incredibly detailed checklist where he would go over the car with a fine-tooth comb, and then he would use all those, you know, the more check marks, you know, the, the, the more things he found, the lower the price got because you had to keep deducting this thing. So, well, a scratch here, a little dent there, a scuffed rim here, uh, you know, a, a scuff on the bumper there, peeling tent here, uh, you know, uh, right rear speaker is blown. So all of these things add up, and then he goes in and he presents, well, here's the, 
here's the uh, book value of the car, and then I had to deduct for all these things, and here's the final, here's the, here's the offer that we're willing to present. And so the customer, the whole time they're sitting in the waiting room, has this, this expectation that my car is worth $10,000. And then in an instant, he comes in and he says, guess what, your car is only worth $8,800. And they go, oh, okay. I mean, that's, yeah, that's nowhere near what I was expecting. And there's back and forth, back and forth. And maybe they get from 8800 to 9000 And so the, the price is $1,000. I didn't get my price of $1,200. got my price of $1,000. So Lemonist trains him to actually do this walk around with the customer. So we slow everything down. Right? It's not, hey, how you doing? Yeah, we're going to take care of you. Just wait here in the office, and I'm going to go out here, and I'm going to do that. No, no, no. You say, hey, it's good to meet you. Tell me, tell me about this car. Uh, how long have you had it? Uh, what are you looking to get out of it? What kind of use is it? Highway miles? Is it mostly in town driving? Uh, you know, have there been kids in the back seat? So you get all this background, and you go, okay, so we've got this um, – 50-point inspection here, and we're going to go through this together so you, you kind of understand what we're looking at. And they walk around the car together, and they're ticking off every, oh, you see, oh there's a little scuff there. Oh, that's not too bad, but, you know, there's a scuff there. Oh, the, the wheel's scuffed here. Uh, let's try out the stereo. Oh, do you hear that? It sounds like that right rear speaker is is blown. And so you start to walk the customer through the process and slow everything down. And lo and behold, at the end of the day, you go to the customer and you say, so here's, here's the $10,000 book value and all the things that we went through on our 50-point inspection, you saw what we came up with. Once we take those things off, it's $8,800. How does that sound? And the customer's thrilled to get $8,800 because the whole time they've been going through this process and it's been check, 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 check. Every time there's a check mark, they see the value going down, 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 down. And so they're building up a worst case scenario in their mind. And all of a sudden you get your price of $1,200 instead of 1000 or even better. So that's one, exa- one very unconventional example where you're actually paying somebody money, but you can see how you can get the price to go up by slowing the process down and making them a part of it. So don't be afraid to walk around the car, so to speak, with your customer. I'm going to give you some more examples. I'm going to give you a very detailed example here in, in just a minute. So I think that there, when, when we talk about just generalizing the issue, uh, I think there are some basic principles. I'm going to run through those really, really quick. And then I'm going to come back through those principles and and uh, give you a specific example from from an industry that I work with a customer in. So I think number one, you investigate the problem and talk about the cost of not fixing it. So whenever a customer comes to you, the very first thing you want to the very first thing you have to do is really understand what's going on. That's where the investigation part comes in. If you just assume that you know what's going on, you're going to miss lots of value opportunities. So really take the time to understand, investigate, make sure you know what's going on. The very best example I've seen of this recently from personal experience was a friend of mine, uh, two brothers own an auto, uh, independent auto mechanic shop. And there wasn't, uh, it's probably two or three months ago, the, the truck that I drive, I drive a big avalanche kind of sort of pickup truck thing 
And it started making a noise on the interstate, and it was pretty loud. And I explained the noise to the, one of these brothers who's, who's a kind of a super mechanic. Like he, can, he diagnoses the problems that nobody else in the shop can figure out. And I explained this problem to him, and he goes, it's, that's the universal joint. Like, no, no equivocation, no, no doubts whatsoever. He's like, that's the universal joint. Like, right away, knew exactly what it was. And so I'm like, okay, well, I need to bring it in. So we set up a time. I brought it in. The very first thing that he did was he said, well, let's, go for, let's go for a quick drive. We'll drive it down the road. Now, he knew, based on what I had described there was not a doubt in his mind that it was the universal joint. But he slowed down, and he took time to really diagnose the problem and not make any assumptions, but really understand it. And sure enough, like within a quarter mile of the shop, we got it up to the speed where it started making the noise, and he's like, yep, that's the universal joint. But, you know, I couldn't believe how much more at ease I was just because he had taken me on the test drive, and he had taken the time to put aside any doubts whatsoever that this is exactly what was happening with the car. So investigating the problem is huge. you got to slow down and make sure that you understand what's going on. And then you can talk about the cost of not fixing it. So what are the ramifications of not fixing this problem? And what is the chain of events that I can expect to happen if I don't don't want to fix it. Literally, what is going to happen next? Right? And you can talk about well, how much are those things going to cost? Those things that are going to happen next, they all have a cost associated with them. So what's the cost going to be? And then you can talk about what is that situation going to feel like? What's the wor- wh- when the worst happens, when is it most likely to happen? Then you get into the fin- finally working up a solution and pricing it. Then you describe the solution and process, you present the price and terms, and last but not least, you engage after the solution is delivered. So that's what, those are kind of the high spots. Now let's walk through these one at a time. So I'm going to give you an example of, uh, I work a lot with a company here, it's a roofing contractor, and I've gotten involved in their sales process, I've heard the sales guys talk about different issues they've had. I've heard uh, you know, the owner brainstorm ways that we can solve these processes. So this is an example that comes straight out of those experiences, and it's pretty much as real life as I can get, bringing a, a good uh, example with lots of detail in it. So let's say in this example, I'm the roofing uh, salesman, and I've got, I've got a call from a customer who's got a roof leak, and they've, they've had me come out to fix it. Now, there's a couple ways I could handle this. The, fir- the wrong way to handle it would be greet the customer, uh, pull the ladder out of the truck, get up on the roof, possibly go in the attic, go back out in the truck, write up my proposal, bring it to the customer, and say, it's going to cost $1,200 to fix your leak. Would you like us to get started or not? That's one way. And believe it or not, that's the way it usually works in most companies, right? Because when you think about it, that's the most efficient way to do it, right? I get, to the, I get to the front door as quickly as possible. I introduce myself so that they know that the sounds they're about to hear on the roof, that's me, and I'm, I'm allowed to be up there. And then as quickly as I can get to solving the problem, I want to get to solve the problem. I want to get up on the roof. 
I want to diagnose where the leak is coming from. I want to get in the attic, see if I can figure out the extent of the damage. I want to work up all of my costs and my pricing. I want to present the contract. I want to get that sucker signed as quickly as possible so I can get on to the next job. That's that's efficient, right? And we, we talk about efficiency versus effectiveness. Most businesses aren't really thinking about effectiveness. They're just, they're just thinking about how they can get that roofing salesman to 10 jobs a day instead of six jobs a day, right? I'd be much happier if he got to six jobs a day and closed every one of them rather than go to 10 jobs a day and only close half of them. That would be better. That would be effective. So let's talk about the alternative way. And hopefully in this example, you see some application in your particular situation. So the very first thing I want to do, right, is investigate the problem and talk about the cost of not fixing it. So investigate first. And so I go to the customer, greet them at the door, uh, and I listen. Like the, I, I show me what you're seeing inside. Show how long has it been there? Does it change when it rains? Have you noticed it getting worse? Uh, are there any other areas you're concerned about? Have you had leaks in the past? I'm trying to understand as much about the problem as I possibly can, and I'm slowing way, way, way down. So then I say, well, let me let me go outside. I'm going to get on the roof. Uh, where's your attic access? I'm, I'm going to get in the attic and look at the problem from from the underneath side, and let me see if I can figure out what's going on. So I come back. Let's say that I've, I've spent now 15, 20 minutes, and I've looked at everything, and I, I think I know what's going on. So I come back to the customer, and I say, you know, I, I found a leak. Uh, it's between the garage and the living room, right? And the water, it looks like it's coming in about halfway down the roof line, and then it's hitting this seam in the roof truss. And about half the water after it hits that seam is dripping down, and that's actually what you see on this spot between the living room and the and the the uh, dining room there, and then the rest of the stream is continuing down the truss where it looks like it's hitting the header beam and it's probably running down the wall studs inside the wall. So what you're seeing here, this spot, this brown spot on the ceiling between the dining room and the living room, that's about half the water. The other half looks like it's continuing down and and going going behind the wall, and we're not actually seeing that yet. So I've described what's going on. Right now, the next thing I want to do is explain what's the chain of events. Like, if this doesn't get fixed, what's the chain of events? So I, it's very simple. If you know, if it, I found this like if it's not fixed, it's definitely you know the the roof where the leak is coming in right now. That's rotting. I can see some rot from the underside. Uh, if we peel off the, if we take the tile off and peel the underlayment off, I'm pretty sure we're going to see rot, more rot on the top side of the roof. I'm only seeing a piece of it from the underside, um, and that's definitely going to spread. If this isn't fixed, more of that area is going to continue to rot. Um, and then, but the other thing that could probably happen, or that eventually will happen, is that rot's going to spread to some of the structural elements. If it gets on that header beam, that may start to rot. Um, it's also, it's definitely. The more it leaks here on the ceiling, that spot on the ceiling is definitely going to get bigger. Um, what, what you might be able to fix with paint now, you probably would just have to pull all that drywall down and replace it. Uh, where the water is going down the wall, if this is, doesn't get fixed, it's soaking the insulation now. Um, if it's not fixed, it's, it's probably going to generate some mildew and possibly mold back there as well. 
so now I've described what's going to happen next or, or the kind of the chain of events. Um, and then I can just play that forward a little more. I say, you know, you're going to notice that spot's getting bigger. Um, the mold and the mildew will, will continue to grow behind the wall. There's an outlet down here. You, if this goes on long enough, you're probably going to experience some problems with the outlet. And eventually, if it comes all the way down to the foundation, once that insulation gets soaked, if we have like a two- or three-day rain, it's probably going to start leaking um, out the bottom of the wall. It's going to cause those baseboards to swell, and those will eventually have to come off and be replaced because they, they kind of swell up like sponges. Then I can get into how much are, th- are those things I just talked about, how much are those going to cost? So I say, well, that, that, the drywall, like we said right now, that's probably, you know, to fix what you're looking at right now, I'd say that drywall's probably pretty good if we got on it right away. If it goes much longer, you'll have to tear that out, and it'll be a lot more than just kind of the texture and paint that you have now. Um, when that leak down the wall spreads, you're going to need to open that wall up. Uh, you might need to do it now, but definitely later you need to open that wall up to address the mold. You probably want to replace that insulation. You'll need to bring in a drywall guy to patch all that up. Uh, you probably are going to want to bring in, if it gets gets really bad, you probably want to bring an electrician in to make sure that outlet's good, those contacts can rust and degrade the quality of the outlet. That could be a safety hazard. You probably need an electrician to sign off on that, make sure that that's all safe. And then you probably, if you went, if you did all that, you're definitely going to need a carpenter to come in, replace that crown molding, replace the baseboards, get everything looking normal. So, I mean, I don't know exactly how much that stuff's going to cost. We have other customers who've had to come in and get that stuff done. A couple thousand dollars for the drywall work, opening the wall up, getting everything put back together, the painters, the carpenters, a couple thousand bucks. Um, you know, they, it could run you that much. If it's if it's still contained, I mean, it, it, a lot of it depends on how long you let it go. If the entire wall has to be pulled apart, because there's mold all through it, then that's a different scenario. But I'm thinking here, you know, if this went another few weeks with some heavy rains, that's what you'd be looking at. Now, I've described next steps, you know, what, what's going to happen to this problem if it goes unaddressed. I've described what that could cost in rough terms. I'm not giving them a quote for doing all the work, but I have, I've given them a sense for what's the cost of letting this go on. Then I also want to talk about what it's going to feel like you know, this is, this isn't, it's funny. I was in a meeting yesterday and the, the uh, business owner used this word manipulation. He was talking about, you know, when you're selling, sometimes it can feel like manipulation, but when you go to a chiropractor, they also manipulate your spine to bring you back into good health. And, and not everything that we do when we're manipulating the customer is bad, you're basically making sure that the customer understands exactly what's going on. You want them to slow down and really think through the ramifications of everything that's going to happen so that they can make a really good choice. That's all you're trying to do is get them in a position to make the best choice. So I, in order to, to do that, I have to address not just the facts of what's going on, but I also kind of have to paint the emotional picture too. So I might, in this situation, say, you know, that, that brown stain that you're seeing right now, it's not that noticeable. I did, you know, you had to point it out to me. If I were looking for it, I could probably come find it, but it's not that noticeable. But 
after a few severe rainstorms, you, you, you might need to even put out some buckets as it leaks through the drywall. That's not going to be too attractive. Um, I definitely move that lamp that's plugged into the outlet. I would not have that there. That probably needs to go in the garage or something until this gets fixed. Um, you also might want to remove this rug. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, if you, if you don't want to fix this now, if you're going to let it go for a while, it wouldn't be a bad idea just to close off this room and move anything that's important somewhere else. Cause I'd hate for it to get destroyed. All right. So now you're talking about, now you're talking about not just the problem with the leaking roof. You're talking about how it's affecting their home. Like we're going to have to shut off part of this home because this is not a good scenario. If this keeps going, the next thing I think you should do is as you play this scenario forward, things always have a consequence when they're put off and you need to make that known to the customer. The way I phrase this with my clients is when the worst happens, when is it most likely to happen? Right? If in this situation, when the worst happens, it's not going to be um, a summer sprinkle and the roof leaks a little bit. Like when the worst happens, it's going to happen in the middle of one of these two to three day Florida thunderstorms where it just rains and rains and rains and rains and doesn't let up for like three days. That's what happens down here. So, say, you know, one of the, as, as I'm talking to the customer, one of the problems here is that if it gets really bad, it's probably going to happen over the course of one of these two or three day things. And there's a really good chance that's going to be a night or a weekend when it finally, you know, when part of the ceiling collapses or you run out of buckets because it's coming through so much. Um, and, you know, we can come out during those times, but it's going to cost, it, def- it would definitely cost more on a night or a weekend. Um, we may not even be able to get here, you know, after hours. But you know, come out on a weekend, we could do that. But you, you know, if, when I think about it, it probably would be several days because everybody with a similar problem is going to be calling at exactly the same time. Right? It's usually two or three days of continuous rain that pushes these kind of things over the edge. Your small leak turns into a flood, and and you need immediate help. But now there's a lot of other people who also need help, and you know, we might have to tarp the roof. Uh, we might have to make a temporary repair. That's going to cost a little bit more until we can get everything fixed. But you're just going to want the water to stop coming through. Um, unfortunately, that's that's almost always going to happen at a really inconvenient time. So now I've kind of gone through this scenario. You can see I've spent quite a bit of time now, but I haven't spent hours. I mean, we're talking. We're literally talking about an extra five to ten minutes here to walk through this dialogue with the customer. Now, what I need to do is work up a solution and price it. So I'm going to say to the customer, let me spend some time putting together the numbers. Because now I feel like I understand exactly what's going on. I'm in a situation where I can go out to my truck. I can uh, put the numbers that we have into our pricing tool, and I'll come back with a price in a few minutes. And you know, while I'm thinking about it, here's some information on, on our company that you can look over while I'm doing that. Um, or here's an iPad presentation that kind of walks you through the repair process and what to expect, or 
walks you through the re-roof process and what to expect or talks about the 10 best tips on home. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we're seeing used in the sales field right now to great effect. And if you have something you want the customer to review in a low pressure situation, this is the time you put it in front of them. You've built a little bit of rapport. They know, just like I did when the mechanic rode along with me, I know that they know that you're listening to them. They know that you understand what's going on. You have a full and complete understanding of the situation. And now as you take a few minutes to get your price together, you can leave them with some material to review in the meantime. So that's done. I come back, and the next step is to describe the solution and the process. So very quickly, I'm just going to say, you know, to fix the leak, we have to replace this whole section of the roof where the leak is occurring. First step is going to be removing all the tile. This is a tile roof, I'm assuming. Remove all the tile around the, the leak. It's, it's kind of hard to tell from the attic exactly the extent of the damage. So what we're going to do and what I've priced here is we're going to open up about a 15 by 15 foot section to make sure that we've uncovered enough uh, to really get at the full extent of the leak. We're then going to remove all of that existing underlayment, the stuff that's underneath the tile until we get down to the bare roof deck. And if parts of that roof need to be replaced, there's definitely going to be at least a small section that needs to be replaced. It could be a little bit bigger. But if we need to replace wood under there, we're going to do that. We'll put down new underlayment, and we'll we'll seal it all up so that the roof is waterproof before we start putting back any tile. And like I said, it's kind of hard to tell from the attic side of the roof just how much rot there is. Um, I'm estimating replacing an amount of wood that's pretty typical for this kind of leak. But if we get in there and there's more wood to replace, we'll, I'll take some pictures of it and I'll get you to sign off on it because it's going to cost a little bit more to get that uh, to get that extra wood replaced. And once everything's watertight, we'll put the tile back down. Some of those tiles are going to break uh, as we pull them off and we'll replace those. But for the most part, we should be able to use what's there now. And then the final step will be cleaning everything up and making it look pretty much better than it does now. That's our goal. And then, once I've described the solution and the process we're going to go through, I present my price and terms, say that your investment in this repair is going to be $1,200. That includes everything we've discussed. And, and like I said earlier, if, if the rot's more than we expect and there's more wood to replace, I'll get your approval um, on that if it's necessary. Just to give me an idea, if we do have to replace more, it's usually like a 10 to 15% increase over the, the price we're talking about now if we have to replace more wood. How does that sound? Do you want us to get started? Right? That dialogue, like I said, does not take a tremendous amount of time. We've slowed the process down and we've communicated value before we have ever done a bit of work for the customer. Now, I know, I mean, putting there's been time in this, that, that person, that salesman is working, but we don't have guys pounding away on the roof until we're sure the customer assents that this really is worth $1,200 to them. Once they say, yes, this is worth $1,200, we know that they have a good understanding, not just of the work that's going to be done, but the cost of not fixing it. Because we've talked about you know, having buckets and having to move rugs and having to hire electricians to fix light sockets and all that stuff. So we know that they have a good understanding of the value. And then the last thing I want to do not the last thing, the next to last thing that I want to do is I want to put time in its proper perspective. And this is the one, this is one thing that I think, I think if you, if you're going to embark on this, you need to do everything we've just talked about in terms of slowing down. But 
there's you know if you can add like one or two sentences to your service delivery processes th- this is the two that I would add right now I don't know maybe it's three but what I suggest and, and what I have seen make a big difference in customers perceptions of what it means to get the job done faster is you say you know I wish I, I really wish I could snap my fingers and have this done immediately the the less banging we have on your roof and the less interrupting in your day the better uh, you know, we'll do our best to get everything wrapped up and get out of here as soon as possible. How does that sound? Right. And so what I have done is brought the customer over to my side where they're agreeing that the faster we get this done, the better. Like we're actually on the same side of the table here. It's not one of those cases where they want me to spend a ton of time to feel like they got a ton of value because we've already talked about the value. The value isn't coming from the amount of time I spend anymore. The value is coming from fixing the problem. That's why I say if you're going to do this, you really need to buy into the slow down part uh, because that's where you get the customer to tie value to fixing the problem. But at a bare minimum, you want them to connect getting the problem fixed faster with more value, not less. And you can do that with a very explicit sentence like, you know, I wish I could make this all go away right now. It's going to take a little while, but I'm going to try to get it done as fast as possible for you. I'm going to try to set a new record getting this stuff done and make you super happy with the result. How does that sound? Now, there is one last thing that I think you need to do. That I don't think it's, I think this is one of the biggest problems in this area. And that is engaging with the customer after the solution is delivered. I think most of the time that engagement is limited to presenting the invoice. Like, we're all done. Here's your, here's your bill. And we sit there and wait for the credit card number or the check or however they've agreed to pay us. But you need to engage with the customer on a deeper level after the solution is delivered. I suggest that you you take the time to describe what was done. Walk the job site. Engage in a little bit of, of show and tell. You know, the great mechanic auto mechanics, I'm gonna go back to the auto mechanic example. Great mechanics, they're gonna walk you, they're gonna walk you through the shop and they're gonna walk you over to the mechanic station where your car was fixed, and they're gonna go over to the corner in that big cardboard box where all the old parts go and they're going to pull out your old alternator or your old oil pan or your old starter or your old whatever it is that they fixed and they're going to point out how worn out it was and they're going to talk about yeah i'm really glad we got to this now it was actually worse than we thought this could have been a real nightmare on your next family vacation or whatever and they're engaging with the customer after the solution is delivered. They're talking about the solution again. They're showing off the work. That show and tell is valuable. In our roofing example, I'd want to walk out in the yard with the customer and take a look at the roof and go, how, yeah, how does that look? Oh, and, you know, look in the dumpster there. You can see that there's some of the tiles that we had to pull off and replace. And, oh, look, there's all that rotted wood we talked about. Man, I'm really glad we got that out of there. A little show and tell goes a long way to having the customer buy into the value that you've delivered. Another thing is leaving your surroundings better than you found them and showing the customer. You know, it's, you got to show it. All, you got to show off a little bit. So, the mechanic shop, you know, with that vacuums your car out before they give it back to you. Now, the vacuuming your car out—that's not part of the repair, right? But they're trying to leave the situation better than they found it. You know, an HVAC company that fixes your air conditioner and then leaves you an extra air filter behind, you know, when you're going to change it out in another 30 or 90 days or whatever you do. 
you know, the roofer that, you know, they look at that drip edge and they're like, yeah, you know, that drip edge over there, that's not part of our repair, but it's looking pretty rough. I'm going to go ahead and replace that extra 10 feet of drip edge. And you show and you walk out and you, when you're talking to the customer and you're doing your show and tell you like, yeah, the, this thing, you know, we didn't talk about this. This wasn't part of the, the, the uh, contract or the work that we said we were going to do. But I noticed over there that drip edge was looking kind of rough. So we just went ahead and replaced that for you. I didn't charge you for that. Leaving the situation better than you found it is one of those things that's an absolute must if you're going to get excellent customer service reviews. And then ask if there's anything else we can do, not anything else we should do. Ask if there's anything else we can do before we leave. And hopefully they say, oh, it looks great. We're really pleased with the job you did. But this is also the time when... You know, a lot of businesses will say, like at the mechanic shop, is there, any, is there anything else we can do before we let you go? And you go, you know, uh, I don't have time to do it today, but every time I get my oil changed, they talk about this fluid flush thing. Is that something you guys do here? Right? Because you just vacuumed my car out for me. That wasn't expected. You took time to do the ride along. You, you showed me the part and you explained to me the cost of not fixing it. And I'm really happy with everything you've done right now. And you just asked, is there anything else that you can do for me? And I think in this fluid flush thing, I keep putting it off because at the 20 minute oil change place, they, they bring it up every time, but I don't have the extra 30 minutes to do it. I wonder if these guys could do it because I trust them. That question, is there anything else we can do for you? Anything else, any other work you'd like me to schedule? Anything that you see um, that, that you would like us to do or, or add on or come back later and address? It's a great time to ask that question. Then you collect the money and you say thank you. And last but not least, you find one more thing that you can do. I call this taking out the groceries. And you're going to see why I call it taking out the groceries in just a second. But there are some great examples of this. One HVAC company that I use, they leave the customer Otis Spunkmeyer chocolate chip cookies. Right? They every time they leave, when you after you've paid your bill, you've given them the credit card number, or you sign the check, and they're on their way out the door, they say, "Oh, one more thing. Here's some cookies. You know, or and I know you got two boys. Here's an extra pack of cookies." Um, I've had. I've had service providers bring in the trash cans for me. I've had service providers coil up the hose on the side of the house as they're walking out to the truck. Um, I've had service providers take pictures of the house as they're leaving. You know, kind of the, the final job well done. I'm really proud of the work we did here. And they'll email those to me. All right, so there's always one more thing you can do. When you go to the grocery store, after you've paid their bill, what do they offer to do? They offer to take the groceries out to the car for you. So find a way in your service model where you can take out the groceries or at least offer to take out the groceries for your customer. Now, we're almost done. It's, we've been like an hour into this so far, but I do want to talk about engaging with customers because when I talk about the kind of process that we've just walked through, a lot of times I'll get the feedback that... Uh, <laughs> my guys can't do that. I mean, are you kidding? These are technicians. You know, they're mechanics. They're they're laborers. We, you know, the salesmen are the ones that talk to the customers. Or the dispatchers are the ones that talk to the customers. Or the managers are the ones that talk to the customers. You know, th- these guys, you don't understand these guys. They're, they're not the kind of guys who can talk to customers that way. Baloney. And I'm going to give you four examples 
of places that are known for this kind of engagement with customers in industries that you would not expect. So I want you to think about, would you expect coffee shops, would you expect a coffee, a national coffee shop franchise to be excellent at engaging with customers, right? I'm going to give you an example of one that isn't, uh, in my experience, and I've been to lots of them. I go to a Dunkin' Donuts. My kids love Dunkin' Donuts, and I'm not trying to slam Dunkin' Donuts, but when I go to Dunkin' Donuts, there is absolutely nothing memorable about that experience. The, it, it is literally like going to a McDonald's, right? There's nothing memorable about it whatsoever. There's, there are people behind the counter. I know they take my order, and they take my money, and they give me my order, and that's the extent of it. Nothing special about it whatsoever. And that's, what you, that's kind of what you expect from coffee shops. Convenience stores, right? When I go in to, to, when I pump the gas and I go in to get a bottle of water for the road or I go in to, uh, to, to get a snack or something between appointments, I'm not expecting tons of engagement from the person who's behind the counter. I just don't. I mean, it's a convenience store for crying out loud. I say please and thank you and have a nice day. But a lot of times, all I see is the top of their head. And that's kind of what I expect from that industry. And going to a grocery store. You know, when I go to a grocery store, do I expect tons of personal engagement? Do I expect people to, to, to really kind of look me in the eye and talk to me and offer to help me? No, it's a grocery store. Like, I go there to get groceries. I don't go there for incredible customer experience. And last, fast food. Like I already mentioned McDonald's. Like what is our expectation of fast food? Is it tremendous customer engagement? It's not. I mean, we, it's, it's kind of the punchline of a lot of jokes. You know, we, what do we expect? We expect disengaged teenagers. You know, we, we expect mumbled speech and slurred words and, and total disinterest. And now what you see most of the time behind the counter at a fast food restaurant is you know two or three of of the employees checking their cell phones way more than they're paying attention to what's going on with the customers waiting to place an order. So that's what we expect and you know coffee shops, convenience stores, grocery stores and fast food restaurants. We don't expect customer engagement. But I'm going to give you four examples of businesses in that industry that have made a name for themselves by offering incredible customer engagement. Right? Coffee shops. Everybody knows this one. You've already guessed who it is. It's Starbucks. Right? Starbucks, what's really interesting about Starbucks from a customer engagement standpoint is they have made asking for the customer's first name part of their order-taking process. I never go into Starbucks, and, I, and I'm there a lot because my day consists of driving from appointment to appointment to appointment, and a lot of times it's the most convenient place for a quick meeting between appointments. And I'm, I'm in multiple Starbucks locations multiple times a week. Every time I place an order, they ask for my first name. Even when I go through the drive through there's a very high likelihood they're going to ask for my first name. Right? How many businesses do you, do you, how many retail businesses do you visit in a day that ask for your first name? Virtually none. Very, I mean, think about it. When you go to a department store, does the cashier ask for your first name? No. When you go to the gas station, does the checkout clerk ask for your first name? Uh, no. When you go to a restaurant, 
When you're sitting at a restaurant and the person is serving you a meal, this is one of the most intimate retail transactions that you engage in on a regular basis. They're serving you food. You're, you're quite literally sharing a, a portion of a meal with them. Do they ask you your first name? Absolutely not. So why on earth would somebody start a, a coffee shop chain and make asking for the person's first name part of the order-taking process every single time. It's all about customer engagement. They do that because it gives them an opportunity to connect with you. Nobody walks out of a Starbucks without, without having been given an invitation to interact with those baristas behind the counter. Right? That just happens as a matter of course. And it happens in an industry that nobody would expect. Convenience stores. This one has come up on my radar lately. Here in the town that I live in, in southwest Florida, we have had Wawa gas station convenience stores start popping up all over the place, right? And I guess this is a bigger thing up north. I'm not really sure. But we have come to truly love Wawa here in our little section of southwest Florida. Not only because they're they're new and they're clean and they're big and they're well-lit and all that good stuff, um, not only because they serve some pretty stinking good sandwiches, but the environment, the, the engagement environment inside the store matches the cleanliness and the well-kepness and everything else. That clerk behind the counter at Wawa, and there are three locations that I've been to, and every one of them has been the same. And they've always, they've, I think, if I'm, the ones I'm remembering right now, They've always been young men. These are like 18, 19, 20-year-old guys. And they smile. They look you in the eye. They ask you how your day is going. We stopped. I stopped there with my boys a couple mornings ago. It was early, early in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. We were going on a fishing trip. We stopped there to get snacks. And the guy's like, oh, look at all these snacks. This looks great. What are you guys doing today? Oh, we're going fishing. Oh, I wish I could go fishing. I've never really been fishing. I've always wanted to go fishing. I hope you guys have a great time. This is literally a 19-year-old kid who's engaging my 8- and 10-year-olds and talking to them about the exciting day that they're about to have and, and how cool he thinks that is. At a convenience store. This is what a convenience store employee is doing. And we don't expect that from convenience store employees. I'll give you the third example, grocery stores. Publix is very well known here in Southwest Florida. People who leave Florida, like they, they, they're glad they left Florida because they want to experience seasons or they want cold weather or whatever. Everybody who leaves Florida, they might be glad to leave a lot of things, but they all miss Publix, right? I'm glad to be in the mountains, but I wish we had Publix up here in North Carolina. I love living in Colorado because I get to ski all these days a year, but I wish we had Publix in, in Colorado. Everybody likes Publix, and you know the tagline is "We're shopping is a pleasure." Um, but to me, there's one person at Publix who makes the whole experience. Now, the, the pricing is is pretty up there. It's it's more expensive than a Walmart or a Winn Dixie. Uh, it, it's not as expensive, but it's close to like a Whole Foods or a Trader Joe's. But there's one person that makes you glad that you paid all of those prices. It's clean, that it's well stocked, all that stuff. But the bagger is the one person who offers at the end of every transaction after I've already paid my bill, like. Their obligation to me is done. I've, I have taken my groceries. I have paid for them. And the bagger always says, can I help you out to the car with your groceries? 
And they don't just say it. Uh, they say it expecting you to say, yes, like, of course you're going to let me help you to the car with your groceries. In fact, they've already got their hands on the cart. They're already pushing it toward the door. Their assumption is that they, they are going to be allowed to help you with this one last piece of your transaction. And that makes a great bit of difference in how I perceive my experience there because they're offering to help me. Up, up until the very last minute, even after the transaction is complete, they still want to help me. The last example I want to give you of the four we've talked about is fast food. And this probably isn't a surprise either. Right, we're huge fans of Chick-fil-A. We've got, two, we've got three kids. Two of them love Chick-fil-A. The eight-month-old isn't quite there yet, but soon will be. And Chick-fil-A, yes, the sandwiches are good. Yes, the nuggets are great. Oh, my God, the waffle fries are phenomenal. But the service at Chick-fil-A stands out more than anything else to me, especially over you know that, that giant fast food chain, McDonald's. Like the service at McDonald's and Chick-fil-A couldn't be any different. And there's two words that every employee at every Chick-fil-A I've ever been to uses regularly that make all the difference. And those two words are my pleasure. Now, what they really mean is it has been my pleasure. But this is uttered after I've said thank you for something. They give me my order. I say, thank you. They say, my pleasure. The person walking the dining room offers to fill my, refill my drink. They bring it back. I say, thank you. They say, my pleasure. I go up to the counter and ask for extra Polynesian sauce. They give it to me. I say, thank you. They say, it's my pleasure. This is coming out of 16, 17, 18-year-old kids. Like These same kids at McDonald's are the ones who can't be bothered to take your order because they're texting, but at Chick-fil-A, they all say, it's my pleasure. That's the difference in, in customer engagement. In every one of these examples, they charge a premium for their products. Starbucks is the home of the $4 cup of coffee. Right? Wawa sells almost as many custom-made sandwiches as they do gallons of gas. I mean, it's amazing. They, there are people there who don't even go there for the gas. They just go there for the sandwiches. And they're not cheap. They're not super expensive. But you know who goes to a gas station to buy sandwiches for crying out loud? Publix, I already said it. They're more expensive than Winn Dixie. They're more expensive than Walmart. There's not a huge gap between them and Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. Chick Fil A. Every time I go to Chick Fil A, I spend twenty five to thirty dollars for a family of four. Right? That ain't cheap. They all charge a premium for their product, but they've all found ways to sell that value through customer engagement. Three of the three of I guess you could say all of them really have gone out of their way to make this customer engagement the last step of their interaction with the customer, right? That's easiest to see at the convenience store where you're checking out and you get that engagement. It's easy to see at the grocery store where you are, you're walking out the door and they're offering to help you with your groceries. It's um, at at Chick-fil-A and Starbucks their last engagement with you is when they deliver that cup of coffee and call your name or when they say it's my pleasure to serve you and you may hang out for a while after but they're you know they're kind of la- the employee's last interaction with you is all around this customer engagement and i think customer engagement is really the missing ingredient and in most blue collar environments. And we hear this, I already said it, we hear this all the time. My employees can't do that. You know, they're technicians, they're mechanics, they're laborers, they're, you know, the salespeople, the dispatchers, those are the people who talk to customers. Those guys who are out in the field that, you know, we don't want them talking to customers. They're not capable of that. 
But if you look at our four examples, look at the four examples we are already talked about. None of these employees are being paid a premium. These are all low-wage or minimum-wage jobs. They're all considered entry-level or low-skill. And if they can teach a teenager to do it, what's your excuse? In most of the cases, in these blue-collar environments, you've got grown men and women out there in the field. And if I can teach a teenager to say, it's my pleasure, and you're telling me I can't teach your grown man or woman to engage with customers, that's because you're not letting them. You are are putting a lid on their personal growth and development. You are capping their potential because you don't you have already decided that they're not capable of something you won't give them the chance to do. And that's a huge mistake. You should raise the bar and expect way more customer engagement out of your folks. The thing that you're going to have to do though is invest the time, money and energy and personal example in training them to do these things because it's a skill. It's a skill just like they had to learn the skill of putting a roof on. It's a skill just like they had to go to trade school and learn how to to repair an air conditioner. It's a skill just like it's a skill to learn what pesticides to use in which situations to solve a customer's pest control problem. These are skills that, that we expect our employees to learn, but we do not expect them to learn the skill of customer engagement. We do not expect them to learn the skill of slowing down and explaining and building the value proposition for customers. But it can be done. It's just a skill. So stop the excuses. Commit to build that skill level among your employees in 2016. I guarantee you it's going to pay off in spades, and the owner of a $10 million company won't get stuck handling a dispute over an $800 transaction. I'm Joey Brannon. This is the Axiom Podcast. You can get notes from this podcast at axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 029, and we'll see you back here next week.